This is a podcast from ABC Overnights. Here's Michael Pavlich. I don't know if you've ever heard of Con Colino. He is an Australian circus performer. He's around in the 30s and 40s. He's one of the highest paid circus performers of the day, in fact, and a very famous Australian. It's a fascinating story. He's part Indigenous, this fella, and believe it or not, he... Um, performed for some very high-profile people in his day, so we're going to find out all about his story, and it's a very interesting one. Mark St. Leon is a circus historian and the author of a book called The Wizard of the Wire, the story of Con Colino. G'day, Mark. G'day, pal. How are you? All right? Not too bad. It's good to be able to pay respect to this incredible Australian. Yes, it is. He's he's a forgotten Australian, Mm. um, but uh, a very famous one, and uh, uh, well deserves to have his story told. Indeed. Uh, now, he's born in Lismore, um, yep. and he's got an Italian-sounding name or a Spanish-sounding name, but it certainly wasn't the name he was born with. No, he was born Cornelius Sullivan. That was the family name. Yep. Um, but uh, uh, he was born into a, a family, of a, 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 a travelling boxing trip, actually. His father was a um, uh, boxing tent showman. He used to travel around the bush. And um, he married a, an Aboriginal lass at uh, Narrabri in 1894. And the idea was to have a, um, a family of uh, boxers. But in those days, there were no um, female boxers. But uh, Mrs. Kalino kept having daughters for children and uh, not, not so many sons. So they had to rethink things. And instead of becoming a boxing trip, they decided to become a travelling circus and um, young Con, he was the third of ten children, he was raised from an early age uh, to uh, performing uh, uh, circus stunts, uh, acrobatics, and um, and uh, eventually took up the tightwire. But as regards the name Kalino, uh, that was adopted, as is often the case in uh, show business. They had to invent a, a fancy hmm. uh, romantic name to promote the circus. So when they started travelling with their own little circus in 1910, that's the name they adopted, Colino's um, uh, Circus. Yeah, look, and uh, as you say, adopted the name, and the Great Sullivan doesn't sort of have the same ring, does it, as the Great Colino? Yeah, nothing wrong with it, but, it, but Colino yeah. might go a bit further. But uh, it was, wasn't just that. It was almost um, at the time they were sort of to find it uh, easier to perform. They hid their indigenous ancestry and uh, went around travelling yep. as, as if they were fr- a, a troop from Hawaii or a troop from yep. Spain. Or that, uh, So yep. they obviously had sort of exotic looks about them and they instead of travelling as a, an indigenous group, they, were, they took on this alter yeah. ego in a way in many ways and they needed to do that to just basically to get work well that's right um those days um, there were tremendous restrictions on aboriginal people they're being put in reserves and um, their movement was restricted and so on and uh, the the Kalinos, i'll call them the Kalinos rather than the sullivans they were sort of in a twilight world because um when I say they're, uh, when we say they're Aboriginal, yes, they were, but they're also a little bit West Indian, mm. and in addition, had some Irish and English blood. So, um, they, all the ten children came out looking very fine, handsome people, but they did have this uh, slight touch of um, of colour in them. And in those days, of course, it was no feather in your cap to take a circus around the country saying that you're Aboriginal yeah. or even 
West Indian, I suppose. So the idea was to um, uh, pass themselves off as Hawaiians. And in fact, there had been a, a troupe of Hawaiian performers that had visited uh, Australia about that time who called themselves the Royal Hawaiians. And I think uh, this is what the Klinos did. We'll, we'll just purloin that uh, little name, Royal Hawaiians. We'll use it for our own. So it was, the circus was eventually uh, advertised as Kalino's All-Star Circus. Uh, uh, featuring the Royal Hawaiian Troop. Well, the Royal Hawaiian Troop was none other than the, the Kalino kids. Yeah. Classic stuff. Now, he, you mentioned that they're, they're all very handsome. He, in particular, was a very handsome man uh, and very uh, dapper, too. He dressed very well, but he uh, certainly, uh, yes, had a bit of a profile, in a sense, um, and, you know, took a lot of care with yeah. his appearance and was yeah. e- easy to market him, I would have thought. Yes, yes. Oh, the, the pictures of them are absolutely amazing, and uh, uh, descriptions uh, published at the time uh, point to his his exquisite Latinate features. Um, one of the interesting things about his uh, good looks was that uh, when his um, show business career took off in the United States in the nineteen twenties, um, it was about that time, nineteen twenty six, actually, that the famous uh, uh, silent film star Rudolph Valentino uh, died at a rather young age, and so Hollywood had to put out feelers for somebody to replace him. And it is alleged, I haven't been able to prove it, but it has been alleged that uh, Kalino was um, called to Hollywood to do some screen tests to uh, take uh, uh, Valentino's place in the movies. But uh, he thought uh, he was making much more money in the circus, and so he decided to stay with Ringling Brothers Circus. That was a pretty interesting career move. He could have had a career yeah. in Hollywood, but instead he, he, he stuck with the yeah. circuit. But, I mean, he was yeah. getting paid $1,000 a week in, in the 20s and 30s. I mean, that would have been an enormous amount of money. Yeah, well, that's 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 the story. I've looked at the uh, Ringling Brothers pay sheets. He was paid at uh, US $375 a week in 1931 or 32, at the height of the Depression, I might add. And, um, well, $375 a week US, it's about $500 Australian in today's money. doesn't sound like very much, but when you take into account uh, inflation over time, it is a huge amount. And uh, Kalino was head and shoulders above the next highest paid act on the uh, Ringling payroll. That was the Flying Cadonas, the Mexican trapeze troupe. Uh, And they were paid $225 a week, and they had to split that amongst three of them. So Kalino was head and shoulders above everybody else on the pay sheet, plus the fact he had um, half an, uh, a, 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 a Pullman carriage for his apartment yeah. on the Ringling Circus train, his own Batman and his own chauffeur, I believe. We're talking to Mark St. Leon, circus historian and author of The Wizard of the Wire, the story of Con Colino. Now, we, he, we were in Australia there for a start, and he was travelling around with the family circus, uh, doing all sorts of things, but he decided uh, to put a bit of time into his his high wire act, and he particularly met someone that was fairly formative. That was to be his his future wife, and she helped to teach him. Basically, she she tidied up his act a bit, dressed him a bit better, taught him some Spanish dance manoeuvres, and really that was almost uh, the turning point, if you like, to the start of his international career. Mark. Yeah, his wife was, uh, or his fiancée to be with, but uh, uh, eventually his wife, that was Winnie Travail. She was a, uh, what, uh, she was in vaudeville in, uh, uh, on the Tivoli and Fuller vaudeville circuits in Australia. So she was an Australian she was girl, yep. 
Yeah, uh, well, actually, she was born in England, but uh, oh. she grew up in Australia. Um, she um, she was what you call a soubrette. A soubrette um, is the uh, girl in the vaudeville lineup who comes forward at the uh, certain points in the program and sings a song oh, yeah. to the audience yeah. and uh, and sort of leads all the other chorus girls in some sort of a, a, a dance and song and dance routine. Anyway, um, uh, Con and uh, Winnie they met each other while performing in vaudeville in 1922, and soon became um, very friendly with each other. Uh, Con, for all his talents, he, he was uh, well advanced on his uh, tight wire act at that time, but he was still a boy from the bush. Uh, whereas uh, when he had uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, vaudeville uh, uh, experience, so she saw the points where his act could be dressed up to put to put on the vaudeville stage, such as his costume, his makeup. Uh, she taught him uh, uh, dance routines and so on. And uh, almost overnight, his uh, his uh, his circus act, which was quite out of the bush, became something that could be uh, easily presented on a vaudeville stage. It had a bit and of class that, to it. Uh, yeah, and with that, uh, he transformed himself from a circus performer to a vaudeville artist, mm-hmm. and uh, his fame uh, shot up. Now, there was a particular manoeuvre he did. He was the first person in the world to perform this particular uh, feat, uh, and it was also something that shot him to fame because nobody else could do it. <laughs> and it's a very difficult manoeuvre, and still, to this day, there's not a lot of uh, high-wire uh, artists or performers, I would think, who are able to perform the forward somersault, but Con did it, mm-hmm. and uh, he was the first person to ever do it. Yeah. I'll just correct you there. You, you've mentioned high-wire. In fact, what he walked was a low-wire. Uh, it was about eight, nine feet off the okay, ground. Yep. Um, and then to be more technical is what, what we call a bounding tight wire, which has a, one spring at the end of the wire to uh, enable the performer to get some uh, uh, traction and uh, 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 on the wire. But uh, what Con performed, um, the the idea in Circus and Woodall in those days was to come up with an act that nobody else had done, um, and um, that way you could... Uh, present the uh, audience with uh, some great novelty and uh, assure your rise in the vaudeville and uh, and, and, uh, and circus uh, world. Um, so what Con decided to tackle was what was called the forward somersault on the tight wire. And this involves the performer um, having to tuck his head into his chest and, and bring the, his body, his feet over. The feet have, virtually have to find a wire without the aid of, of sight. Um, people had done what was called a backward somersault, which is just a tad easier because... You can see the wire, yeah. As the performer turns his somersault, the performer can, his eyes can see the, uh, the wire, but with the forward somersault, the, the feet have to find the, uh, the wire uh, virtually unaided. So he was the first well, person to be able to do that, and it was a, a bit of a feat. I would imagine circus performers yeah. all over the world would have been going, wow. Yeah. Well, it was. Uh, it took him several years to master it, and um, um, and then a, a few more years after that to perfect it. So it was uh, it was a suitable standard for, uh, mm. for public presentation. But this is this. He's doing this out in the bush. Remember, sometimes sometimes he'd be practicing late at night. He'd string up string up his uh, tight wire uh, between two gum trees and have a lantern at each end, and he was. Um, uh, um, these camps, circus camps in the bush. That's how he was. Uh, he was perfecting his art, but he eventually pulled it off, and uh, uh, something that 
Uh, very few performers have done. There have been other performers who have done it since, but um, but Kalino was really the master of the trick. I'm sort of glad he didn't attempt it on the high wire because it could have got a bit ugly. Yeah. Uh, there yeah. were there were some very famous high wire performers in the era. Yeah. I'm thinking of the, the fellow who, uh, you know, did the high wire routine between two buildings in New York, a long, long way up. Did he ever yep. dabble into that sort of thing, or he, he was more of a circus performer, like a purist who liked to dance on the high wire and do somersaults yeah, well, rather than just this sort of the height thing? Yeah. Well, you're, you're referring there to Philip Petit, the French uh, high-wire high, high walker. Yep. As a matter of fact, I just had some email correspondence with him a few weeks ago. Um uh, yes, he was. Uh, he shot to fame with his uh, famous walk uh, between the, the twin towers. Unfortunately, of course, those twin towers have gone now. But yeah. this is back in 1973, and later that year, I think it was, he um, visited uh, Australia and uh, walked the. Uh, he uh, surreptitiously put up a tight wire, uh, put up a, a high wire between the uh, the northern pylons of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and uh, walked across that uh, about, I think it was about 7.30 or 8 a.m. in the morning, just as the peak hour traffic was building up and brought the, the traffic to a standstill. What What did he think of Con's work? He'd obviously be aware of oh. Con Colina. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, of course. But they're different disciplines. Uh, sure. Con was a, an acrobatic uh, uh, tightwire, acrobatic uh, dancer on the tightwire, uh, which is a low wire, whereas Philip Petit was a, uh, you, I don't mean to be patronising, but he's an exhibitionistic uh, kind of a, uh, a high wire walker. He's out there to uh, present an exhibition to the, to the to the general public in the wider sense of the term. You're saying a bit of a gimmick there, you reckon, Bruce? <laughs> Well, no, well, no, no, I don't, I don't want to reduce in that far, but it, but it no, is. No. A, it's, it's probably uh, someone who's written a book about circuses be the only person to make a distinguish distinction between the high wire and yeah. the, the tight wire. But we know what you're talking about. That's you know, it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, so he's in Australia. He's perfected the forward somersault, and yeah. then he's decided. Well, look, you know, this is a pretty good act. I look pretty good. They've uh, tidied the the whole act up and he's gone over and he's performed in new york at the hippodrome and that really was a defining yeah. moment in his career wasn't it yeah the family uh they they toured around australia for several years and australia for all its geographic size in uh, national terms is a pretty small place only about five million or so population so you go around australia a few times and uh, you've uh, seen all there is to be seen so the family decided to close up their circus and they did a, a stint on vaudeville here and then decided to uh, go overseas and try their luck and they thought they're only going to be away for three years but in fact uh, they never came back they went first to south africa and then to london and then across to new york which then as now was sort of the mecca of um, show business yep. And the idea was uh, for an act to get known in America was to, the term they used there was make good. You need to make good. And the idea was to make good at the Hippodrome, which was the uh, the largest uh, of the uh, vaudeville theatres in America at that time. I think it could accommodate about five or 6,000 hmm. uh, in the audience. So Con uh, uh, made his debut at the uh, New York Hippodrome. This is the year 1924. And uh, it was quite a dramatic uh, event because um, um, 
uh, uh, con uh, in America, the 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 arc lights used in the vaudeville theatres were much much more powerful than what uh, he'd been used to here in Australia, uh, and um, unbeknown to him, the arc lights also. Um, not only exuded uh, light, but also a, a certain amount of heat, which um, uh, reacted uh, on his tight wire. And so when he came to do his act, the, the wire was a bit floppy, uh, floppier than usual. Yeah. He, di- he didn't understand what was going on, and he couldn't perform his, um, uh, his uh, forward somersault, and he kept trying again and again. Oh, no. In, in front of this New York, huge New York audience, and finally they uh, um, uh, they had to. Uh, people were screaming and throwing their programs on the stage. Don't do it! Don't do it! You'll hurt yourself! You'll hurt yourself! Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, but then he suddenly realised what the problem was: the arc lights. And uh, so the story goes, he had them turned down. Yeah. And then, uh, in some sort of a uh, 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 serendipitous kind of a way, he. Um, he mounted the tight wire again and performed a perfect somersault, and the, the audience just erupted in uh, <laughs> in fears. And he went down in history then as a uh, having made good in America. There you go. And of course, it was from that point that the Ringling Brothers decided, you know, he's he's the real deal. So they signed him up, and he became the, one of their stars. And as you say, he had his That's own. Right. He was so big that he even had his own carriage on one of their four trains. It's a huge operation, the circus in those days. You think about oh, how yeah. many people they employed, and uh, look, four yeah. trains for the Ringling Brothers, sixteen hundred people they employed, uh, eight hundred yeah. animals. It just must have been a massive operation to haul that around, yeah. the, around the place. Yeah. Very exciting life, I imagine, for Con as well. Look, I got a text here from Jason Paddington. It says, "What does your guest think about the Willender family, please? Do you know anything about them?" Uh, well, the Willenders were uh, they were high wire walkers. Um, again, I use the term exhibitionists. But I, I, I don't mean to be patronising. It's, it's a um, uh, they they did such things as uh, I think uh, five or six Willenders would mount each other on sort of piggybacks and walk across the uh, high wire. Uh, in that respect, um, Carl Willender uh, unfortunately lost his life falling from the tight wire some years ago. But he was um, he was walking to to such a great age. I think he was in his seventies when he um, when he fell from the wire. Yeah, I reckon uh, it's, there's a few dangers involved with the high wire act, you'd have to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, Amber in Parramatta has, wants to have a check. G'day, Amber. Oh, good morning, Pat. Hello, Mark. I was wondering with um, this um, circus work, whether um, he might have done TV on that circus show that Don Amici had back in the day. Yeah, look, he did do some TV, didn't he, Mark? Yes, he did. He, uh, I don't know if he performed on Don Amici's program. Um, I, I grew up myself in the United States. I used to watch uh, Don Amici every Saturday, I think it was. Hmm. Uh, but I don't recall um, uh, Kalino. Well, he probably would have been retired at that stage anyway. But we do know that he did make uh, appearances on early US television. He, he, um, he performed on what was called the Texaco Star Theatre in 1952. And there could have been other appearances. Uh, we're still trying to uh, uh, uncover the uh, the tapes of those early performances. So far, we haven't had too much luck, um, but we do have, certainly have plenty of other footage of him uh, performing in circus and vaudeville. Yeah, there's a fair bit actually on the internet. I was able to track down and yeah. watch quite a bit of Con performing his yeah. his, his act, and it was 
<laughs> it's pretty, pretty well, impressive all this time later still, I must say, Mark. Yeah, yeah. well, that's, I put the footage up, that's fine. Okay, well, well done. Thank you for doing that. Hey, thanks, Amber. She's gone now. Um, so he's over in the States. He's picked up by Ringling Brothers. He became a very sought-after performer, not just in America but in Europe as well. Um, and he, so yeah. he travelled over to, in um, the American winter, I believe, to uh, to Europe yeah. and started performing around there. And he did some pretty interesting shows in Europe while he was there. Yeah, the American season, circus season, only goes from about March to November and then the, the, the big American circuses close up for the winter. And that's when um, American circus performers often would hop on a boat, go across to uh, London and uh, the continent and perform in what we call the winter circuses of Europe. These, these are permanent circus buildings, um, but um, they're arranged like a circus, you know, with a ring and audience yeah. around. And uh, they go from uh, one city to another, London, Paris, Berlin, Rome, etc. And uh, uh, Now, what, what, and, do you, uh, what years are we talking here? Uh, I think the first year he was there was 1929. Okay. Uh, and he was almost every winter uh, up until 1939, the outbreak of the Second World War. Pretty, he was over a, there in a Europe. pretty dynamic time to be travelling through Europe. Look, uh, yeah. we're talking to Mark St. Leon here, circus historian and author of a, a book called The Wizard of the Wire, the story of Con Colino. Uh, and we're talking about him travelling through Europe just before the war. And uh, it's a pretty interesting uh, uh, extra bit to this story. We're talking to Mark St. Leon, circus historian, all about the story of Con Colino, Australia's great high wire performer, so he's tight wire performer. And we're talking about that uh, he was very popular in, in one of the highest paid circus performers in America and the US through the 20s and 30s. And he's in Europe now and he's doing some pretty high profile shows across Europe. This is just before the start of World War II. So who did he, uh, where did he go to in that period there, Mark? Well, in London, he performed at uh, the big uh, variety halls, such as the Empire and Palladium. Yep. Uh, but going across to uh, Paris, he'd perform at Cirque uh, Madrana. And in uh, Berlin, he'd perform at the, uh, the Scala uh, Theatre. Theater. Um, not Scala as in Italy, but Scala as in Germany, S-K-A-L-A. And uh, I think his first performance there was in 1934, and the, uh, he's on front of the uh, Scala programs as the the manliest man in the world <laughs> and showing a profile of, uh, of Kalina on the wire. The manliest man in the world. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. Okay. Yeah, that's how it translates in English. Now, obviously, uh, while he was in Germany at that time, the, like, there's a bit of politic politics going on around the place. Did he pay yeah. much attention to that? No, Khan wasn't a particularly political person, um, but nevertheless... Uh, Amongst his audiences were um, all sorts of high-profile political people. Uh, in Italy, he performed before uh, Mussolini. Okay. And in Germany, he performed several times before uh, Adolf Hitler. Did, did he get to meet either of those very interesting yes. historical figures? Yes, yes he did. Um, in fact, I, I, I never met Con myself, uh, but I did uh, meet and interview his widow. She, return, uh, she returned to Australia. Um, after his uh, death in Florida in 1973. And I spoke to her at some length about um, uh, Con's career, and she she did say that uh, she didn't like very much to talk about it because um, he turned out to be such a horrible person. But mm. uh, in those days, 1930s, Hitler's star was in its zenith, 
and um, it was a great honour to perform before him. And um, she said that um, they met they met Hitler, and uh, <laughs> apparently Hitler came around backstage or something after the performance and uh, uh, shook hands with them, etc., etc. Or what the Germans do, uh, boot clicking and heel clicking and that sort of thing, which. Uh, was the uh, de rigueur for the time. But uh, I couldn't get too much more out about that uh, yeah. from Winnie because she, as we know, uh, Hitler turned out to be not such a very pleasant kind of a person. Do you think Hitler had any inkling at all that he was an Indigenous Australian? No, no, none whatsoever. Because uh, um, Kalino was, um, um, he was marketed in Germany as a, a Mexican uh, type of <laughs> Uh, and that's why it went out. I've got here a little news clip, if, if you'd like me to read it, uh, from sure. uh, the Daily Mail of London in 1939. Do you like me to read that? Sure. Well, it's not too long. Um, this um, is headed site, right? This 1939 Daily Mail. Herr Eduard Duisburg, director of the Scala Theatre Berlin, shot the cuffs of his cream shirt, smoothed the trousers of his pinstripe grey suit, settled himself into a sofa in the Savoy Hotel Lounge in London and told me about the task of entertaining Herr Hitler. Quote, The Führer is not only an opera and theatre-goer, said Herr Duisburg, but a great vaudeville lover as well. He has been to the Scala seven times and only a few weeks ago he came to see Grock and Concolino. He liked their acts very much indeed and laughed very heartily at the clown. The German variety go is being treated to less and less verbal humour simply because there is little patter that does not come under official censorship. Hmm. And then it goes on, and the article concludes, Duisberg says, The Germans today are being trained to enjoy sight rather than sound. We give them big productions since there isn't much left to talk about. So hmm. Kahn's act went over well with Herr Hitler, not only because it was a great act, because there was no subversive uh, talking yeah, or... Yeah. Uh, any political involved. It was not non-threatening at all, but still, well, what an amazing thing, incredible thing. And yes, I wonder if Hitler had known that he was an Indigenous Australian, whether he would have treated him with as much deference and respect. Well, in theory, no. But we'll probably never know the answer to that. Let's have a chat to Bob. G'day, Bob. G'day, Pav. Look, I am I was just remembering back in the 1980s, I did some security work at a uh, bull and circus, I think it was, and uh, Buster Noble and his daughter Patsy Ann Noble, they were great entertainers, but they came from a circus family that uh, was connected to bull and circus and uh, their relatives were all the the circus uh, high trapeze artists. Oh, yeah. And I- I noticed they were uh, very high on the. Uh, uh, they were the the biggest people in the circus, the high wire yeah. trapeze artists. Did uh, did, Buster Con- Noble? did yeah? Well, do first of all, yeah, do you know Buster and Patsy Ann Noble, Mark? Oh yes, certainly they were uh, quite uh, quite famous in uh, Australian television programs back in the nineteen eighties. I recall. Did did Con ever try the trapeze? Well, the idea in a family circus in those days is that you, you became a jack of all trades. So uh, uh, he specialised certainly in, in the uh, in the tight wire, but as well as that, he was a, an accomplished acrobat and um, a horse horseman. Yep. Um, I don't know that he actually 
did the trapeze, but I'm, I'm sure he, he may, may have attempted at some stage. He even played the trombone in the circus band. All right, he's a very talented man, I tell you. Yeah. And, and he was eventually recognised for his talent by, the, is it the Circus Hall of Fame? Yeah, in the United States they've got halls of fame for, you know, Everything. baseball players, yep. football players, everything, and they have a Circus Hall of Fame. So, Con, uh, this was set up, I think, in the 1950s, and um, it's interesting to note that there are three Australians who uh, have been inducted into, this hall, into the Circus Hall of Fame. One was um, uh, the great Australian bareback rider, May Worth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other was uh, Con Colino. And the third was Con's uh, sister, Winnie Colino, who was, um, in her own right, was a famous uh, trapeze artist, a, a solo trapeze artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should mention that Con's wife was Winnie also, uh, but he also had a sister, Winnie, so they distinguished between Big Winnie and Little Winnie. Big Winnie was his wife, Little Winnie was his sister. Huh. Now, it was also uh, remembered uh, or recognised with a stamp at some point, it was issued in, uh, t- dedicated to him, wasn't it? Yeah, in 1997, Australian Circus... Um, had its 150th anniversary. So a few years um, in advance, I uh, did a bit of uh, moving and shaking and uh, lobbying, and I got Australia Post to uh, produce a set of commemorative stamps to uh, commemorate the 150th anniversary of Australian Circus. And uh, amongst the four stamps that were produced was one which uh, featured uh, Con Galino. Uh, well, well done, Mark. I think we've got to thank you for that. I'm sure uh, Con's uh, memory and legacy is you know, well deserving yeah. of, of such a, an, an issue or a stamp being issued. And look, it's been fascinating talking about him this morning with us. And it's something, one of those stories that very surprising that more Australians haven't heard of Con Colino because it's an incredible mm-hmm. life he lived. Uh, very nice to talk mm-hmm. to you this morning, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Mark St. Leon, their circus historian and author of a book called The Wizard of the Wire, The Story of Tom Colino. Mm-hmm.